Have you ever prayed or had the dream of being unified to another person, but then realized how hard it is to actually do that? <laughs> Think about the uh, newly married couple who realizes one day that they don't have nearly as much in common as they thought they did when they were dating. Or think about children playing with a new group of kids and realizing that they all have different rules for the same game. Or think about new members who join a church and then maybe after a while and the dinner invitations might slightly lull and the work increases and maybe it's not quite as fun as you thought. Or think about college roommates with wildly different cultural expectations of what their new dorm room, their new home together should look like. One likes to get up early, one likes to stay up late, one loves to invite guests, one prefers a quiet living space. Maybe one grew up a Christian and the other one grew up worshiping another god or many gods. Or none at all. And now they find themselves inexplicably together. Friends, all of this is a lot like what the early church looked like. Where people came from very different backgrounds, especially very different religious backgrounds. There were different preferences. There were different rules. And there were different expectations and there were Jews and non-Jews, which is a fancy way of saying everybody. <laughs> and they, they suddenly find themselves a part of this new church family. And many of them have exactly one thing in common. They love Jesus. Is that enough? Yeah. And it still is. God is a God of unity. And he made it possible for anybody to be united to him through Jesus. And if that's true, and I think he can certainly unite people to one another. But just as it was not easy for Jesus to die to accomplish that goal... It is not easy for people to unite themselves to other people because, in a way, whenever they do it, they die a little bit. It hurts. It hurts to change the rules and the expectations and the compromise on the preferences. And the early church, because of the differences, and I should add as well, their, their sins, there was a lot of work to do, especially at first. So during the few decades of the church, some of Jesus' original disciples and some new leaders like the Apostle Paul, they wrote letters to guide these young churches as they sought to be unified. And sometimes these were general letters to just circulate around and benefit all the churches. And sometimes very specific letters were written to very specific churches having very specific problems. But all the letters, I think to one degree or another, tackled two issues. 
what Christians should believe about God because of Jesus and how Christians should treat each other. You get that? What Christians should believe about God and how they should treat each other. And those two questions are inseparable for any Christian. Jesus himself said so in Matthew 22 when a lawyer was trying to trap him in his words and he responded by summing up the law of God. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. And secondly, you should love your neighbor as yourself. They're tied together. In other words, what, God, what God's church believes about God will affect the way they treat each other. And especially when there are issues, the reverse is true. How God's people treat each other reveals what they really believe about God. So there's a lot of stuff to work through, and there still is today. Fortunately, one of those letters to the early church does this connection between God and people so clearly, we're going to be walking through it between now and August. It's the book of Ephesians. And we're summing up Ephesians in this way. Because God is uniting all things in Christ, he calls us, or his people, to walk in unity. God is a God of unity, and so we are to be people of unity. So here's how I'm tackling today's overview. I'd like to start with a little bit of background on the book. And I want to do that for not just to give you fun trivia, but to say that Ephesians is not a book without controversy. Its authorship and even the audience to which it was written are very much debated, and this is you might call the height of irony, that, that regarding a letter so, so richly dedicated to unity, so many people would be disunified about it. Now, some of this disagreement, I think, isn't shameful. <laughs> it's scholars really wanting accuracy. I'm going to dig in and say, who was this written by? Can we trust it? Who was it written to? Why does that matter? But there's also some disagreement out there that's just stoked by people who do not like God's word. They begin with a dislike and then they seek to pick it apart and ask questions that need not be asked to provoke disunity. So background information like this is for our unity in and of itself. And as your outline puts it, Ephesians is a letter for unity. So let's talk about authorship. Who wrote it? Well, we think that Paul wrote it. But the authorship of Ephesians seems to be one of the most widely debated in the New Testament. In fact, college students or religious professors might talk about this. So here are some arguments against um, Paul writing this that are floating out there, at least some of the big ones. Number one, as you'll read Ephesians, you'll find that the style with which it was written is fairly different from Paul's other letters. It's perhaps not as lively as it seems to be a bit more reflective, meditative almost. 
And that is true. But I want you to consider the situation. As you read the book of Ephesians, you'll find that unlike many other letters in the New Testament, Paul seems to be writing to a fairly broad audience without a very specific problem. He's rather introducing the idea of unity found in Christ. So this is not a letter like, say, 1 Corinthians, where a church Paul helped to plant seems to be falling apart and people are suing each other. I mean, just just imagine yourself writing two letters. One of them is to a, a pen pal that you haven't really met before, and you're writing about an idea that you yourself have been gradually understanding. Think about how you write that letter. Now imagine writing a letter to a close friend who has betrayed you. Would those styles be a little bit different? Yeah, they would. (laughs) Wouldn't your writing style change? One of the other uh, arguments against Pauline authorship is, admittedly, it uses about 35 words that are not used in any other letter by Paul. Now, I could just go the cheap route and say, hey, haven't you ever learned words? You know, but, but I'll just say this, Galatians and Philippians do the same thing and Paul's authorship is not nearly as debated there. So just conclusion here, we don't see any reason to conclude that Paul did not write this book. And as one scholar put it, as you read it, it really does smell like his other writings. So second thing let's talk about is the audience. Who is it written to? And you open it up and you say, the Ephesian church, of course. That's actually a little bit more complicated. You you might look at the title and say the Ephesians. That's what I did at first. Um, but there are a few counterpoints. And I actually want to want to go through them to encourage you and not to shock you, rather to provoke you to think more deeply. Um, Number one, the earliest manuscripts don't actually include the phrase in Ephesus in chapter 1, verse 1. And it reads like this, to the saints in Ephesus. So it doesn't have in Ephesus. And in fact, as I kind of said earlier, if you look outside of 1, 1, there's not really a personal greeting to the Ephesians. There's not really a speaking to a particular issue in the Ephesians church. And uh, other saints at the time record the letter being read and circulating in in a place called Laodicea and in other churches. So, what's the point? Well, it seems more likely that this, the book of Ephesians, is an example of the first type of church letter that I mentioned in my introduction. It seems more likely that it was a general letter meant to circulate and benefit all the churches rather than just quite simply aim at one. And this does seem to make sense, and it doesn't change the authenticity of the book. In fact, where where Paul seems to have written from, which is in Roman prison at around 60 AD, this would have put Ephesus, which was the largest church in Asia Minor, as the first major stop if it was being distributed. And if you were sending out a thoughtful letter about ideas that you're meditating through and you want to teach to churches, you'd probably start with the big one. 
And um, um, so maybe how you could read chapter 1, verse 1, is to the saints in Ephesus. Imagine copying letters to send to different churches. And the first one says, to Ephesus. And the second one says, to the Philippian church, or Colossae. It's a personalization, and that's the one that's stuck. So, the, um, the conclusion here is, we're planning to preach this, as, assuming the Ephesian church was an audience, true, but not the only audience. And in fact, if we're going to learn from it, I think we have to admit that it's for us as well. So again, this seems to have been written around 60 AD, and this was around the same time that there were others' letters sent out to a man named Philemon, as well as a church in Colossae, the Colossian church. Um, In fact, all of these letters, as you read them, they cross-reference each other. And so these are, this is one particular letter that we believe is going out to a wide audience to teach the idea of unity to a young church. And that, I think, is one of the major reasons why we are preaching this book right now. Because we have been called to the same unity as any of God's churches. And we grow in unity by growing in Christ and His Word. That's how we get to know each other more deeply. We don't just hang out. We don't just socialize. We dig deeply and we understand God. And that is what binds us together. In other words, as your outline puts it, Ephesians is not just a letter for unity, but as we look at the structure, we're going to find that it's very much a letter about unity. So I'm going to look through the structure a little bit. If you were one of the lucky few first people, we, do have, we did have some maps of the book of Ephesians, not like a physical map, but a guiding map of like the full outline of where we're going with it. Um, I will say as well, in addition, if you're listening on Zoom, if you go to our church website, which is the website is at the bottom of your bulletin, you can find a digital version of that map even right now. And I'll try to print some more. But I'm at least going to give you the three-point outline of the book of Ephesians, and that's actually on your, um, that's actually on your, uh, your outline in front of you. God is uniting all things in Christ. That's the first point, and it's the first three chapters. Secondly, God calls us to walk in unity. That's basically the main point. Because God is doing the first one, he's doing the second one. And then finally, and it's almost a conclusion, point three, grace and peace to those united with Paul and Christ. So let me just briefly break down the first point. God is uniting all things in Christ. What does that actually mean, at least in a basic way? There's a real highlight in this first section, and I think it's perhaps the most notable verse in the entire letter, and it's chapter 1, verse 10. Now, I'm going to lead up to that because, and this is another reason we think Paul wrote it, it's at the end of a really long sentence, and Paul really likes those. So this is starting in verse 7, and I'm going to land on verse 10. So, chapter 1, verse verse 7 through 10. In Him, that's Jesus, we, that's the church, have redemption through His blood. 
The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Friends, what Paul is doing here in the opening verses is he's earnestly calling the Ephesians, indeed I would say all churches, to realize that the mission of this young church is not simply to grow the church in number or even simply to bring together different cultures. It is to unite them in Jesus Christ and this has been the plan all along. That's the heart of it. That is why the church exists. It is for the sake of unity. To show the world what real unity is supposed to look like. And this letter then goes on to talk about unity in, I think, three very specific ways. The first is the unity of God, or what you might hear as the Trinity. There's a number of verses, you can write them down as I read them here. Um, Chapter 1, verse 3 through 14, we're going to go over that next week. Um, uh, Chapter 1, verse 17, chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. You're going to see it in more places than that, but... What you will see in there is that God himself is a God of unity, existing as Father and Son and Holy Spirit, all working together to accomplish one goal. So that's the source of unity. So you can imagine, just do a horizontal line, but way up high, this is God up here, unified. Okay? Second, the unity between God and man. I feel like a priest now. Um, (laughs) Jesus' death and resurrection. You're going to see, I'm going to read, in fact, chapter uh, 2, verses 5 through 7. It's the unity between God and man. Where Paul writes this, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He, that's God, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So God the Son, that's Jesus, makes man's restoration, unity with God the Father possible and he awakens us with... Um, how chapter 1, verse 17 puts us, the power of the Holy Spirit. So, all right, we've got God up here and he's unified. And now he's calling people and bringing them into that unity with himself. And again, since God is the one doing it, it is possible for anyone to be brought into this. That would have been a shock for the Jewish audience. Now here's these non-Jewish people, and, and, and they're coming in? So how should all these people, united by God, live out their faith? 
Well, that's the third type of unity, and it's the whole second half of the book. Unity between Jew and Gentile and how that actually works. Or as we've put it in the overview map, since God is uniting all things in Christ, God calls us to walk in unity. So that's the that's point two on your outline. It's the whole second half of the, the book. Or rather, I should say, yes, yeah, it's, it's the second half of the book. And so now, as God is unified, and he's unifying us in him, he's now calling us to be unified with each other, and go get people, and to work together, and to bring everyone, and invite them to that unity. Now, I'm not going to go into a ton of detail on the second half of the book, because it gets very, very specific with practicals, as Paul explains applications of this gospel in light of life together for this early church. But he touches on things like purity and communication and love and walking wisely as as spouses and as families. And so what I'm simply going to read is Paul's statement about what motivates us to correctly apply the gospel by living unified. So Paul writes this right at the beginning of part 2 of Ephesians, which is chapter 4, verse 1 through 5. And I'll read that. You can write it down if you'd like. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Paul writes this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In short, friends, our motivation to apply the gospel and to live unified is to remember the author of unity. In other words, our hope for horizontal unity is not simply to have common hobbies or all vote the same. It's to remember the unity that God has in himself and the length to which he purchased to win us into that unity. And so Paul writes in shorthand, you're unified in Christ, so act like it. Be unified to one another. I'd like to do two things as I begin to close, and it's a long closing. Don't don't get too excited. (laughs) One is I'm going to read a lengthy quote by C.S. Lewis on church unity, and then a bit of application, and then I'll read finally Paul's closing verse verses from Ephesians as a bit of a prayer for us and our church. So, one of my favorite books is by Christian theologian C.S. Lewis, and it's called The Screwtape Letters. Um, It's a collection of, very creative, it's a collection of fictitious letters written from the perspective of a demon. Just bear with me. It's like you're reading his mail, and how he, he tells you how he's planning to break down the church from within, or disunify And um, 
Lewis wrote this so that the church would examine itself, that we would read and think, huh, is this, is this true of me? So these letters are written from an old wise demon named Screwtape to his nephew, Wormwood. And in one of my favorite letters, Wormwood's youth and inexperience has caused his human patient to slip from his clutches and, oh no, he's become a Christian. And so Screwtape is giving Wormwood advice now that this new Christian has joined a local church. Here's what Screwtape writes. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes even our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, that is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished Sham Gothic erection on the new building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing literature that neither one of them understands and a shabby little book containing corrupt text of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad, and in very small print. When he gets to his pew, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has up to this point avoided. Lean heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind bounce to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. Now, it doesn't matter what kind of people the next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter. Your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune, or have boots that squeak, or double chins, or odd clothes the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. Work hard then on the disappointment or anti-climax which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman. The enemy allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when the boy who has been enchanted in the nursery by stories from the Odyssey buckles down to really learning Greek. It occurs when lovers have gotten married and began the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks the transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. Good words from C.S. Lewis, and they prompt me 
to return to my opening question, but I address it to you. Friends, have you dreamt of church unity here only to find out how hard it really is? Or have you noticed that you don't really care to do it? Underneath all the pleasantries and the free bread, what do you really think? What do you really think about the people here? What do you think about the, the older members here? What do you think about the leaders? What do you think about the kids? What do you think about the new members? Do you see soldiers? Do you? Do you see the church of history terrible as an army with banners? Or do you see confusing literature and do all you hear is all you hear squeaky shoes and voices out of tune and crying babies? Application time. My application is first to the Christian as we begin the book of Ephesians. When you struggle with unity here, you're going to be tempted to want to apologize or work on your behavior, or you're going to want them to work on theirs. But I would say when you struggle with unity here, what you need to do first is consider your union with Christ. And you need to consider God's unity. That's your motivation to be unified. Your faithful brother and your sisters here, older and younger, are part of that same union. And you can have nothing in common with them except Jesus Christ. And that will be enough. You can get unity from that. And Paul's going to give a lot of great suggestions about how to do that in this book. So read it. Here's the second possible application to anybody here who maybe isn't sure if they're a Christian or they're searching. If you are a more regular attender here, we welcome you. We are glad that you're here. We want to get to know you. You may need things like community or you may value physical help from us in some way. We love those things. But all the church events, food banks, clothing drives and fun activities mean absolutely nothing if you do not love Jesus. We want you to be united to him and to us. That is what we want for you most. And then, we want you to become a member, like my friends have this morning. Or, join another church. We like this one, but we want you to plant your flag somewhere. When that's done right, the world will notice. 
That's what makes the church such a blessing. And it's the reason why everybody in the book of Ephesians is dead and the church is still here. It's what makes us such a blessing to the world because people try very hard to get unity without Jesus. And if he is merciful, you will recognize that. History has shown us that unity really is not possible without Christ because deep down, especially when life gets difficult, we all naturally have our own interests in mind. We do not naturally unify for good. Good news is that Jesus died to unify people to God the Father. And this is how God's kingdom on earth, the church, began. And when its unity is displayed... People see a glimpse of the perfect unity that God has with his people. And they see a little picture of heaven when it is done correctly. And when we get to heaven, we get true and lasting unity among people from every nation. We get the peace that the world wants. That's how you get it. So with that, I close with Paul's parting verses to the Ephesian church. And I invite you to join us in the book of Ephesians. This is closing is found in chapter 6, verses 23 and 24. It was Paul's blessing to the church as it was beginning. And it is our blessing as the church continues. Here it is. Peace be to the brothers... And love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So before I pray, I'd like you to take a moment quietly and write down in your outline or if we ran out, could just consider yourself, how would you like to grow in unity to God and to this church as we read. Maybe it means you take the first step and you move towards becoming a Christian. Maybe you join this church. Maybe you join a church elsewhere. It's fine. Maybe there are people here that you need to move towards just in selfless love. They're not like you, but they love Jesus, so get to know them. Maybe you need to move toward them in reconciliation. Or maybe you're just busy all the time serving here and you need to grow in unity with God because you've forgotten how to do it. Take a moment and think. Write it down and I'd like to ask you to share it with somebody before the day ends. Let's take this moment together and then I'll pray.
Let me pray for us. Jesus, may your peace rest on our church when unity is laborious, when it's hard. And may our love come from not only our care for one another, but our love to reach a dying world. And may that come from faith, not in our ability to get things done or change the world, but may it simply come from a love for God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. May our love be incorruptible towards one another as we love the Lord Jesus Christ and we are filled with his grace, extending it freely to one another time and time again. God, may we be united in Christ and walk in unity together. Amen.